Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Allison Lee, one of the co-hosts of the channel and associate professor of art history at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Today, I'm excited to be interviewing Leslie Geddes about her new book, Watermarks, Leonardo da Vinci and the Mastery of Nature, which was published by Princeton University Press in August of 2020. Let me begin by telling you just a little bit more about my guest. Leslie Geddes is an assistant professor of art history and the director of undergraduate studies in art history at Tulane University. She specializes in Italian Renaissance and Baroque art, and her work generally investigates the interrelation of art and science, specifically how early modern artists, architects, engineers, and cartographers observed, rendered, and shaped the world around them. The book she wrote, which we'll be discussing today, entitled Watermarks, Leonardo da Vinci and the Mastery of Nature, shows how Leonardo applied his pictorial genius to water to render the natural world in all its richness and constant change. From drawings for mobile bridges and underwater breathing apparatuses to plans for water management schemes, Leonardo da Vinci had a deep interest in the technical aspects of water. And analyzing his notebooks, plans, and paintings reveals that for Leonardo, drawing was a form of visual thinking that was essential to understanding and controlling water, as well as other parts of the natural world. Needless to say, it really is a great privilege to get to discuss this book with its author today, and I hope you all enjoy our conversation. Leslie Geddes, welcome to the show. Thanks, Allison. I'm really happy to be here. Well, glad that we could finally, I should, I should admit right off the bat, probably people noticed in terms of me saying that this was pub- published in August of 2020, that I'm a little behind the times. This is one of the books that slipped through the cracks, I've told Leslie, and in terms of when the pandemic started, it had been on my radar to do this interview, and then life became totally crazy, as it did for so many of us. So I'm really glad that even though I'm way behind the initial publication of this, that we can call attention more to this just fascinating book. So you know, I'm going to ask you, I should say too, Leslie is a listener to this to the show, so she kind of knows how I do these and structure these interviews. And I love this first question where I'm asking you to kind of tell us a bit about yourself. Where are you from originally? How did you become interested in art history, which is one of my favorite questions to ask all scholars? Um, of course, you can tell us about any mentors you had in graduate school or along the way. Give us just kind of some of your background, if you would. 
Sure, Allison. I love this question too. I'd love to hear the answers to this also as a listener of your podcast. So I'm from San Francisco. So I grew up going to the DeYoung Museums. I have very vivid memories of spending um, many, many visits there with my family. But like many of my students, and I'm sure many, many, many colleagues, I didn't formally study art history until college, right? And I have very vivid and dear memories of taking my very, my very first art history class, which was an introduction to architecture with Joe Connors at Columbia. And pretty much from that first class, I was hooked and I went on to work quite closely with Joe, um, taking a number of his classes on architecture. He's a great Borromini scholar, for example. And I even went on to write my undergraduate thesis with him and what turned out to be his very last year teaching at Columbia. Yeah. And also through that process, I think for me, the, the possibility of being able to continue to take art history and to continue on as a graduate student and you know, embark upon a career was really first modeled by graduate students. I really fond memories of getting to know people who were maybe first my TAs, but then folks who maybe I was taking a class with, like I took a ton of Latin, so there would always be like graduate students in the room with me as well. And really kind of being so curious and admiring, like how you know, what were they working on and how they all seem to be doing this really fabulous travel. And that to me, of course, like perked me up and me thinking oh, like, okay, yeah. how can I do what they're doing? We're all so, in it for the travel right? secretly. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. And, but I really think it was seeing these, you know, graduate students um, opening up the possibilities for me. It wasn't something I was aware of as a potential career or pathway until I saw folks, you know, kind of slightly, but significantly farther on um, kind of embody that pathway that opened it for me. And then I continued on to Princeton to work with John Pinto. And that all brings me up to today. <laughs> Just like that, snap, snap, like you're that. done. And now, now you're in a tenure track position. Yeah, lonely. Yeah, um, right, right. Gosh, you know, I love, I, I think you're the first person I've ever done one of these interviews with that, that spoke to the influence of graduate students, of, of your sort of, you know, TAs and or your cohort. And I, I just, I think... I understand exactly what you mean so much. And I, I, I'm so glad to hear you kind of giving that shout out for those who are our most direct sort of people that we're emulating and asking questions of often much more so than our mentors who we love them, but they're super kind of scary and remote in some ways from us. And, you know, I think you figure out to a large extent how to be a professor and a researcher and a scholar from talking to your fellow graduate students in right. many ways. Huh. Right. Yeah. And I think um, that kind of nearness is also the intellectual conceptual work in the sense that I remember as an undergrad, like knowing, you know, just kind of having still a kind of baby brain around subject matter and, and intellectual inquiry, but knowing that they were all working very hard to figure, figure out their pathways through their own problems of investigation. Right. And seeing that as intellectual work, as difficult work, but as rewarding work is something that I think I definitely carried through into, you know, when I began graduate school myself. And then, of course, had true peers, like true colleagues, like folks who were in the trenches with me as we all sought to formulate our, you know, dissertation projects and then kind of move on. And I remind my Tulane students of that. Um, that kind of dynamic of undergrad and graduate students at time, because we do have um, a very small MA program with very limited PhD students. So our undergrads are actually very often in the classroom, in our seminar classrooms with grad students. And so to kind of help them see that dynamic as something helpful, right, that the grad students can model 
uh, ways of engaging with the material at a kind of, you might think of as a, as a deeper or more invested level, but also the undergrads with their, their kind of hustle and their curiosity and first time reading the material, first time really looking, can also create this kind of beautiful synergy in the classroom. So I think about it pedagogically these days as yeah, well. Absolutely. Well, I think this leads pretty nicely into, into the next question, which is just about how you came to write this specific book. And I know that this was a dissertation. Um, it's, it comes up in a couple of different ways. You can usually tell this from the acknowledgments of people's books, but can you say a little bit more about how this came about? You know, Just because you write a dissertation on something doesn't actually necessarily mean that it's going to end up being your first book. So I, I love to kind of hear about this process, where it began and everything. Allison, that's such a, such a good question. That's another thing that I like to, to hear other folks' pathways through their first book project as well, because you're absolutely correct, right? That a lot changes from dissertation to book. And for me, I want to say that I did not set out to write a dissertation on Leonardo da Vinci. That to me would have sounded totally possibility, right? It was one of these things where there were a constellation of interests that I was developing. In short, I went to Princeton to work with John Pinto, who is an expert in 18th century Roman architecture, and I wanted to work on Roman urbanism. And I started working on projects like fountain design in Rome, but I was also interested in villa culture, particularly in the Veneto. And I started thinking about large-scale land transformation in the natural and built environment. And when you're talking about large-scale land transformation, as as it turns out, you're really talking about water as being the primary driver of change, the primary mechanism and means by which uh, the natural terrain can be augmented, uh, manipulated in so many different ways. So that essentially brought me to work on a number of hydraulic engineers. And I remember as I was developing my dissertation committee, you know, trying to make this case for working on This one particular hydraulic engineer who is a contemporary of Palladio and showing these plans and these questions I wanted to ask. And my committee essentially suggesting, look, you're interested not just in the engineering, which is fabulous, um, but you're also interested in water as a problem in art. And it's true. I was very keen to think about the difficulties of depicting water. Water is formless. It's transparent. It's mutability. it's, It's liquidity makes it a difficult subject to render. It also is a problem of perception, right? It's difficult to see and interpret in in various ways that we can get into when we talk more specifically about some of Leonardo's strategies. But anyway, kind of coalescing around these interests on the part, you know, engineering-based and very kind of technical in certain respects, and then thinking of representations of water in art and all sorts of different media, you find Leonardo as this kind of linchpin. It's like all roads lead to Leonardo in many ways. And so it's with that encouragement, I embarked upon the study of Leonardo's um, vast corpus, as it turns out, of studies, uh, both pictorial, but also writing about the subject of water in all of these different myriad applications. Mm-hmm. Well, this leads nicely, I think, into my next question, which isn't one that I would ask on my own but I've been getting 
more and more feedback just in terms of listeners contacting me on uh, social media and through email and things like that. And one of the number one things that I'm getting asked to write or to ask you scholars about is the process of transforming the dissertation into the book. Now, I know that this could totally take over the entire interview and I, I don't want it to, but they tend to have kind of specific questions. They want to hear about, to some extent, sort of what, what had to change and I think grad students know that sort of the review of literature has to change when it becomes the book. And But they want to know, like, structurally, how did it change? Like, I think in your case, I'm going to ask you later about the, the sort of twofold division of this book, part one and part two. And then beyond that, you have sort of six chapters with an intro and an epilogue. And I think I, I do wonder, was that the same structure, same chapter numbers uh, sort of as you had in the dissertation or did that shift? Um, and then they tend they tend to want to know how long did it take you from sort of when, you know, when the dissertation was submitted and done to when you submitted this manuscript and we're sort of like, the book is now done. So if you could grapple with those two questions a little bit, I know there would be some appreciative listeners. I'd be really happy to. And I think my first um, way of addressing it is to realize that the dissertation and the book are fundamentally different in one really key way. I try to explain this to other folks I've been speaking to about this process of advanced graduate students and folks maybe working on their first book proposal and manuscript and all of that, as thinking of it as a kind of loosening. In fact, the book can be a bit broader in scope. The voice of the author can be, at least in my experience, I felt it to be a little bit looser. Everything the dissertation needed to be in terms of being a kind of airtight argument, right, where you needed to document everything, every footnote that needed to be in place to show that you'd read all of the things that you understood, you know, all of the arguments and counter arguments around your particular objects and all of that actually loosens up in substantial ways. So, for example, you can imagine with the Leonardo literature, <laughs> my the footnotes in my dissertation were almost a burden, right? It was there was this sense of a kind of um, exhaustion, I would think, or maybe that's my own exhaustion talking, right? But this sense of a kind of comprehensiveness that I think one uh, one expects and perhaps is in fact required of a dissertation, this demonstration of all of the research and the bona fides and this documentation as you build out this initial argument. That kind of uh, uh, comprehensive apparatus in terms of documentation is certainly something that is not even appropriate towards a book that while academic is certainly should strive to be of a broader audience. So in tandem with that kind of loosening up of, of some of that um, that back matter is also that kind of loosening up of the voice that I was alluding to a moment before, where I felt freer in my articulation of my arguments. A lot of my revisions, and I can go into the structure in just a moment, but a lot of my revisions were kind of a, um, a more emphatic and muscular assertion of my argument in ways that were also about a kind of... Um, uh, assurance in my own sense of what this material meant within the field, and also links that I saw um, moving outwards from it in different ways in the years uh, that had passed from my articulation of the dissertation and defense of it, from its uh, reworking in a manuscript, and certainly from its, its polishing um, in the form that you see today. So in many ways, I actually think the book writing is... Uh, 
luxurious isn't the word I want, but I want to give this kind of sense of something that allows for a little bit more play. And I think that that might be, I hope might be encouraging to some of your listeners who are embarking on transforming their own dissertations into books. And of course, it's not an easy process. It's a very long process and it's a difficult one. Um, but I think approaching it with that certain kind of curiosity, but also realizing that there's there's room to do different things than what you did in the dissertation and that you are choosing to be an author of a book. And so it should be the book that you that you want to make is, in fact, a, a quite freeing way to approach um, this rigorous intellectual project that is the making of a book. Oh, my gosh, I love everything that you just said. I was like writing things down quickly because I'm between us. Well, I mean, between us and then it's going to be the, the whole whoever in the world wants to listen to this. But I had the most horrible writing day today, this morning. And you have just briefly sort of restored my faith in, in what we do as writers of books, which you're right. It just is, isn't the easiest thing, but but it is luxurious. So I, I'm, I'm going to embrace that. You know, it is... We, we do get to be, how did you say it, more emphatic and muscular in the application of our arguments. I, you're right that in some ways the dissertation as an exercise is a kind of limiting structure. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be sort of tight, like you said. There has to be a comprehensiveness of demonstration. But when you get to the other side, I mean, we have editors looking over our shoulders. We have peer review. I mean, there, there are checks and balances on our luxuriating in our arguments, but... Yeah, you're right. I think I, I need to remember everything you said a little bit more in my days where I'm like, nothing is going right. Why can't I write today? Um, now, you alluded to something that you know I'm going to ask about, but partly because uh, I'm writing on artists who are more canonical recently, too. And, you know, I, I, I see a new book like yours on Leonardo, and I think oh my God, like how did this person, the the chutzpah that you have to have, not only to say, I have something new to say about Leonardo. And I, I mean, I, I, you will never see me roll my eyes in a, a more sort of exasperated way than when we're at conferences or in, in various situations as art historians and one says to the other, you can't write on Leonardo anymore. You can't write on Picasso. I just think that is so ridiculous and I could not disagree more. There's always new stuff to say. But you not only have to battle what you know are going to be people who tell you, no, 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 everything's been said that can be said about Leonardo. But then you have to read what is such a voluminous amount of scholarly literature. And you talk about this right up front in the introduction of the book and, and you sort of batted away in a way that I really liked. But I, I do sort of feel like I have to ask, how did you tackle it? How on earth do you, one scholar to another, decide enough? Because I think we all battle this, well, I just need to read one more thing. Oh, there's one more article. Oh, wait, wait, wait. There's one more book that I haven't read. Like, you know, this this moment where you say, okay, enough. I have to stop reading. I know what I want to say and do and start writing. Man, it never, it never gets easier. It hasn't for me, at least. Yeah, and I think that's a really fair, fair question, both about what it means to tackle these canonical artists and also in the sense of thinking through a little bit reflectively the process of conducting research and how one deals with this vast corpus of literature. And certainly in the case of Leonardo, it took me years, mm -hmm. years and years, even to kind of get my 
my sea legs in the literature. And Leonardo is a kind of an exceptional case in certain ways. I mean, we can think of other artists who are perhaps analogous in terms of the historiography and the, uh, the weight or freight of literature around that artist. Leonardo is a little bit perhaps unusual in the sense of also needing to contend with his manuscripts and writings and graphic mm. output. So we're also talking about thousands of sheets um, that need to be analyzed and that also have been um, assembled and unpacked um, critical editions with transliteration. And, you know, in some cases, there's some English translations, but a lot of it, of course, not. Um, various kinds of critical apparatuses and all of that around understanding the sheets and their chronology and the history of um, how those sheets and their particular motifs and pictorial information have been decoded and understood alongside a substantial amount of work to understand Leonardo's own writings, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. He's also a bit of an unusual case in that it required me developing competencies in fields outside of what one might consider outside of traditional art history. Mm -hmm. This is a lot of the history of engineering and science. So that's another separate literature that needs to be understood as well. So I certainly wouldn't sugarcoat any of that and say that that, that was the gift of grad school, right? That was the gift of going through a dissertation of having that time um, to figure it out myself. And, you know, of course, it was in consultation with um, mentors and colleagues and, you know, the groundbreaking work of many, many, many terrific Leonardo scholars. And I, of course, have some very close friends, fellow Leonardisti, where we can kind of compare our understandings of him and, you know, um, really talk shop in different ways. But I think for an individual scholar who's interested in, in becoming a Leonardo scholar, it's, it's going to require years. Um, mm -hmm. So I wouldn't yeah, I, w I think it would be a disservice to um, this subfield <laughs> to say that it's something that's easily done. And again, it's not something I would have felt emboldened to tackle without um, trusting my my mentors. Right. Like I really had to had to say, OK, if they think I can do it because I don't think I can do it, but they think I can do it. Then mm -hmm. that's enough for me to to embark on this pathway. Mm -hmm. And in fact, now that the book is out and I'm working on all these different projects and part of me wants to stay with Leonardo studies just because, oh my God, my, my, my PDFs, there are so many, it's so good. Like the corpus, like it's taken, you know, decades in the making, basically. It's not the kind of thing one wants to put off to the side. And I laugh about this with some, you know, some close friends who are in Leonardo studies, um, but it kind of pulls you back in because you just, you know, it took so much work to get to that point. You're laughing. So I know that you, you feel me on this, right? I'm laughing just because... I I I so adore the transparency of what you just said and I you know I suddenly I'm thinking on back to sort of the other interviews I've done where I've asked this question because it doesn't come up in every interview some people do work on things where I think the, the scholarship I mean, it's always vast, but but Leonardo is like I just I cannot even imagine I really can't and I had never I had never thought of like like sticking with it, like, because, because you do, you, you spend so many years developing the expertise. You can sort of see why in, in the past, especially like old, old timey art historians would like stick with a certain figure. Like I'm thinking about like Leo Steinberg working on Michelangelo for a long time. Like now I'm like, Oh, 
oh, maybe he felt the same way or he's like, you know, I got all this in my brain. Like, I'm just going to stick with it. I think that's how, it's smart when you think about it. But but I, I don't know, 21st century careers, we're expected to sort of, you know, talk about so many things and produce so many different books and so many different subjects that I... I'm not sure that the way that it used to be like in the 1950s, 60s, 1970s is like we could get away with it anymore. Hmm. I'm looking at my list of questions and I, I feel like I should ask this one next. And you feel free to, you know, to dodge any of my, I am not a <laughs> Renaissance specialist. So sometimes I feel like, I don't know, when I'm talking to someone outside of my field of study that I get like, I just want to know what you think about XYZ and like, tell me the juicy gossip about Leonardo in, in this regard. Or, you know, so I'm going to try to like rein it in. But you open the door to this question slightly in the introduction because you talk about, and this does relate to this idea of like historiography that we're talking about and the voluminous literature on certain artists. But you talk about the current swell in interest in Leonardo that is stemming from, and I think you're 100% correct, it's coming from two things that happened in 2017. And we're still kind of, these are still huge influences. Said, you know, listeners might be like, well, that was five years ago. But it, in art history, these are, these are big moments. So one was in that year, the publication of Walter Isaacson's still, I think, quite best-selling biography of Leonardo. And then the other is the sale of the infamous Salvatore Mundi at Christie's for $450 million. I don't think my students would ever forgive me if I didn't ask you to weigh in on the Salvatore Mundi. Like I said, if for some reason, this is dangerous for you as a scholar. You can dodge it. But they are endlessly like wanting to know who thinks it was painted by Leonardo, who thinks it's a workshop picture, how, you know, which art historians are brave enough to like throw their hat in the ring and say something about this because it is still kind of scandalous. And I think you're right. It affects who's going to buy your book and a book like this is going to do better because of those two things happening. So Will you tell us what you think of the Salvatore <laughs> Mundi, even though it yes, is not yes. in your book? This thing, you know, yeah, let's, let's be clear. You know, please don't, please don't seek out my book if you think I'm talking about the Salvatore Mundi. It has no bearing on my research avenues. Um, but actually, I want to first back up and add a third prong to the two you set up, because you brought up oh, Walter please. Isaacson's biography and the Salvatore Mundi uh, sale in 2017. Um, 2019 was the 500 year anniversary of Leonardo's death. So there was mm -hmm. a huge outpouring of new literature and exhibitions, including a major show at the Louvre, um, which I just happened to see it was my last international trip, you know, and this oh, was January wow. or February of 2020. Oh, yeah, before gosh. the world shut You're down. Lucky. So yeah. <laughs> I know now in retrospect, um, we're all sort of like, did that happen? How did we, right. Mm -hmm. it, it, so many mm -hmm. things have happened since then. Um, but right, you know, leading up to the pandemic, let's say, because that's become a, a very clear marker of, you know, uh, our present day and before, uh, there was substantial buzz, let's say, around Leonardo for a number of years. I also want to say that Walter Isaacson uh, is also happily one of my colleagues here at Tulane, that he teaches a course in the he history is? department, usually on biography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a kind of I special, very Walter fancy senior. I think he's a busy guy. Um, he's, he's, yeah, a total, he's, he's very smart and has been very supportive. And we've had some lovely chats. Um, but yeah, but he teaches a class 
um, maybe perhaps once a year. I'm not quite certain. So, you know, I don't want to, to misrepresent. Oh, that's the career that I yeah. want. What? Walter Isaacson <laughs> teaches one class and is otherwise yeah. like a jet setting supportive colleague. Yes, please. Yeah, oh I think my. it's, I think it's gotta be a good gig. So of course I mentioned that to my, to my students because I, I teach a variety, not every year, but as it's, as it happens this semester, I'm teaching uh, a Leonardo lecture class. And of course, oh, like nice. I have his book as, as one of the recommended texts if they're yeah. looking for an overview. Um, a biographical overview of the artist, but also that that publication and others open up ways for how we still within popular culture, let's say, like so getting out of the weeds of Leonardo's studies, how we within a culture still valorize his particular pictorial intelligence and full on intelligence, um, but also how we as a culture still very much um, want to tout this singular persona as a kind of embodiment of, of certain types of knowledge making, but also um, an elasticity of mind, but also, you know, perhaps somebody who's, who's constantly thinking, thinking ahead of, of one's peers. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can take very, you know, kind of capitalist <laughs> um, directions and ones that I'm also keen to have my students recognize this kind of myth of the genius, the myth of the kind of the lone person and do my absolute best to counter with historical record. One of the chief things I try to do when I teach Leonardo is uh, have my students realize that he was incredibly social and he was a person who was deeply enmeshed, of course, in a number of, of, of social spheres and worked with a number of different patrons and all of that, but somebody who was deeply connected to other individuals who were also thinking through similar, um, similar problems and pathways, right? Mm. So to remove from him this sense of somebody working in isolation, which was never the case, and return to him this sense of him being you know, exceptional in many ways, that's undeniable, but somebody who is deeply enmeshed in his own world and particularly a social world. And I think for students to hear that, that's that's enormously important, right? That that's a definitely right because I think this is yeah. also even about knowledge producers today and us as as academics. Books are not made in isolation, right? Mm -hmm. They're through conversation, they're through feedback, they're through site visits with folks, right? So returning to that sense of knowledge production, the sense of of, of shared conversation and dialogue. And of course, we can see that also pertains to Leonardo and all of his his many facets of his his output. So mm -hmm. I'd also throw that in there as well. Um, yeah. Would you like me to get to the Salvatore Mundi? Would your if would you, your audience? If you want. I thought we were sort of we were getting close to it because <laughs> this idea, which I'm so glad you emphasize for your students, you know that that these that these men that we think of as these lone wolf geniuses, you know, like even the idea that the Salvatore Mundi might be what we call a workshop picture, meaning somebody who was close to Leonardo in his studio, being trained by him, preparing paints for him. I mean, what that means is already breaking apart this idea that he's isolated and working alone. Like the fact that it could be a workshop picture is a sign of his sociability, his being connected to lots of other people and so on and so forth. Right. And normalizing what, what, painting practices were actually like, right? That it was never the sole artist of one, mm -hmm. you know, one's own hand um, touching and making a work of art from start to finish, right? Yep. So again, to, uh, to critique in essence, wall labels at museums, for example, right? Mm -hmm. Which will most often only give credit to one artist. Maybe they'll say if it's workshop, if they don't you know, have a secure attribution, but that's why they put it's workshop. Yeah. Or maybe in, in some notable examples, give you know dual billing to two exceptional artists and so forth. But rather to see that story is inherently much messier and to my mind, way more interesting. 
right? So to not see it as a kind of loss, but in fact, see it as a way of thinking anew about cultural production mm. as the work of, of many hands, many minds, and so on. Yeah, so yeah, that is something that I absolutely want to fold in. As far as the Salvatore Mundi, you know, I've never seen it in person. I haven't done a technical analysis, anything like that. You know, I heard about it in advance. I remember kind of fairly early on in some of my research years when I was looking at lots and lots of Leonardo drawings firsthand, I knew about it um, and knew that there was, of course, some skepticism or discussion about if this was indeed Leonardo and understanding, of course, that if it is by him, that it's going to generate enormous interest. I don't think anybody quite understood um, the spectacle. And I, I say spectacle intentionally, mm-hmm. that it would um, uh, prove to be of course, with this massive sale. And certainly when I speak about it with my students, who of course, it's so funny, Allison, it actually, it went from students asking me about the Da Vinci Code. Do you remember that? <laughs> to oh, students asking yes. me about Salvatore Mundi. <laughs> they that Mary Magdalene yeah. and Juana Arg. Oh, I remember oh, those days. So funny. Yeah, you're right. It's shifted now. Exactly. So it's the current thing. So who knows? Maybe there'll be another, you know, kind of hot topic around Leonardo. I, I shouldn't even raise that specter. Soon like they're going to be asking, have, or... have we been on the, the Saudi prince's yacht yeah, and right. seen the Salvatore right. Mundi? That's going to be like the next evolution of this question. Right. And oh I'll be gosh. like, do you know what my life is like? Um, <laughs> <laughs> in regards to the Salvatore Mundi, I like talking about it mostly as a modern phenomenon and as mm. a kind of extraordinary example of uh the art market machine, we can think of it that way, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you've looked at, and it's Christie's, right? If I'm remembering rightly. Yeah, they put together this very slick promotional campaign around the Salvatore Mundi where they you know, brought together the full apparatus of various scholars speaking to it. But it really, it was this kind of glossy, slick production value in mystique around this object, turning it into a, you know, kind of modern pop icon, almost, Mm -hmm. that is, to my mind, a more fascinating way into an object that to me is not particularly innovative or interesting. It certainly doesn't relate to the intellectual questions that drive my work on Leonardo or or any artist. It just, you know, Mm -hmm. so happens. That's not the kind of um, content or questions that I'm, that I'm interested in, but it is, it has been fascinating um, to see it as a, as the recipient or the vehicle of this marketing phenomenon. So I speak about it in that context um, when asked um, most frequently. And I think a a kind of nice analog to that is thinking about the sale of the Codex Lester, which Mm -hmm. happened in, if I'm remembering rightly, in the 90s. So this is the only Leonardo manuscript that's in North America that's now in the collection of Bill and Melinda Gates. And uh, that sale was also via auction. And you can actually compare, and this is something I sometimes have my students do, the the catalogs for each. And that similarly had a huge amount of press around it. Um, and that price point was also very, very high. And, and I think maybe about 100 million. I don't quite remember. So, you know, forgive me if I'm misquoting there. Um, but you get this sense that for, for a long time, Leonardo has proved this, this kind of example of an artist whose output when it comes up for sale in this very particular way via an auction house, right, commands these astronomical prices that are a spectacle. And what I would rather think about is how that reflects in complicated ways on questions of value, right? Um, And by that, of course, I don't mean merely monetary value, though that becomes a kind of shorthand, of course, and understandably, for thinking about other other types of value. 
So it's also important to realize that, of course, both works that I'm talking about are in private collections. Mm-hmm. And whereas the Gates have been um, have had a long history of showcasing and displaying the Codex Lester in numerous venues um, and making it available to the public and having various you know digitization projects and all of that. There's a brand new critical edition of the Codex Lester that just came out a year or two ago by Martin Kemp and, and uh, Domenico Lorenza on the part of the Salvatore Mundi, of course, like most of the chatter is like, where is it? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> will that ever see the light of day? Will right? we ever and see it again? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I can't, I can't answer that question, but I think thinking about these, these objects in the context of um, shared perhaps cultural heritage and access, it's important to highlight these differences when things are in private collections. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I know exactly what you mean. I think spectacle is a really good word for it. And I think that ends up kind of being how I teach it on the rare occasions when it comes up. And I usually do sort of a a day about the spectacle, let's say, when I'm teaching art appreciation of all things. And we're talking about the art market and how art gets valued and what the role of the art historian is versus the art critic. You know, all these kind of different people that make up this world and how they keep us really separate in interesting ways. But I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the Codex Lester because I, I wasn't going to ask about this, though now I feel like this is just turning into like, I don't know, like a gossip session or something. Oh, no. but, I mean, <laughs> as a Leonardo scholar, I find your life so interesting. And I'm sure you, you know, you feel the same way about us modernists where it's like the things that we do are, you know, are cool in their own way. But I only know this from the acknowledgments at the end of your book, where you thank Bill and Melinda Gates for getting to see the Codex Lester. And I think I wrote in the margin, wow, with like 10 exclamation points and and thought to myself, oh, I want to ask about like just mm-hmm. what that was like, like as a human experience. Yeah, and then I was yeah. like, that's that's not a good question. Don't ask. But now we're here and I'm going to ask it. And maybe I'll, I'll say one more thing just about... The one time that that I myself personally interacted with Leonardo drawings was at an exhibition I was very lucky to see in London in the Queen's Gallery. And this too, I think, was 2019. It was just before the pandemic, like one of the last big shows I saw. And to say that my mind was blown would be an understatement. I mean, it was like a spiritual experience mm. to spend a couple of hours with his drawings, with these sheets that he handled, you know, with the like, with these media that are not super familiar to me as a 19th century specialist, like silver point, where like every mistake is instant and irredeemable. Like, I don't know, I, and I can, so I can only imagine what it would be like to be sort of one-on-one like that with an object like the Codex Lester that's in private hands, though you're right there, they've been good about sort of letting the public have some amount of access to it. What was it like? Yeah, so I've got a couple of thoughts, but I want to start with thanking you for sharing your personal experience of seeing some of his works on display at the Queen's Gallery. And I want to say that of the sheets that are in the Royal Collection in the UK, that they are perhaps some of the most readily accessible of Leonardo's uh, graphic corpus. Um, Certainly they make very strong efforts to keep some selection of his drawings because of course works on paper are light sensitive, right? So they can't Mm -hmm. stay on display at all times, but they always have a number of of his sheets on display at one or more of the the Royal galleries throughout the, the UK. 
Um, and I think that's an important mission on their part. I also want to share that for my first stint, long research stint working on Leonardo drawings, my first stop was actually Windsor Castle, hmm. um, which is the home, right? The Royal Library there is the home of, of this significant corpus. We're talking hundreds of sheets by yeah, Leonardo. It's astounding. I had it's no astounding. idea. <laughs> Though I should have known. Of, of all the people, mm-hmm. who's going to have a bunch? The Queen of England is going to yeah. have a ton of Leonardo <laughs> stuff. Right. Yeah, right? right. And I keep also thinking like, yeah, now I'm going to refer to the king and that just seems so, so odd, right? Um, no, no, it's weird. This, right? Right? Um, <laughs> And that was, you know, me as, as a very junior PhD scholar going there to work, and they were enormously and immediately accommodating. And I spent something like five months going back and forth from London on the train to view those sheets. While there's extreme, heavy, understandable security and various procedures yeah, one has to go through to, to access them, them mm-hmm. they would bring me boxes and boxes and boxes of them. Wow. And that was, I'm so fortunate. I'm so fortunate, Alison, that that was one of my first uh, experiences working directly with the drawings which are breathtaking and still the immediacy of beholding the work with your eyes versus a digital image, no matter how you know fabulously detailed and how much you can blow it up. There is no, to my mind, substitution um, from time spent with the actual object. Um, that experience certainly bolstered some other rather harder or you know more prolonged challenges I had in getting access to Leonardo's work. So in the example of the Codex Lester, that was a tricky one. I would say, I can't quite remember the timeline, but I generally think of it as taking me about two years to get access to it. Mm-hmm. And for a long portion of that time, it was trying to figure out how do I access, like, who do I contact? Right. I bet. Yeah. Right? Like, who do you con- like, that was, you know, the kind of the first barrier um, that I had. And it was ultimately, if I remember rightly, a huge, you know, eternal thank you to Martin Clayton, who's the wonderful. Um, uh, drawings curator in the Royal Collection at Windsor Cla- Castle, truly wonderful and um, uh, exemplary and important scholar of Leonardo, but also you know a large swath of old master drawings. Um, he directed me, if I'm remembering rightly, to the person who served essentially as the art consultant for the Gateses. And so I remember writing that person and having a kind of appeal, you know, that I mean, that I wrote in like a letter format, like this is who I am. This is why I need to see these certain sheets. These are details I'm looking for, you know, the justification. And I remember we then set up, he, he got back to me very kindly and we set up a phone call. But at that point I was living in Florence. So I was calling to the, to where he was based in New York. And Mm. I had a kind of phone interview. And it was when I returned to, to Princeton, um, that I reached out to him again and we set up an in-person meeting. And then I think, and this is again, my memory, I went back and forth between Princeton and New York for a number of weeks or over you know, the span of a couple of months, even I don't quite remember, to look at the high quality digital images they had on computers in those offices of this, mm. um, this um, art consultancy, because those images were proprietary in essence. So it wasn't something oh, that they yeah. could give me on a disc. And if I'm remembering rightly, this is also when I don't think it's the case anymore. Um, Bill Gates owned Corbis, right? So that that repository of, you know, that photo archive mechanism. Mm-hmm. So they had very fancy photography, not just, you know, high resolution, but they had some of those fancier, you know, kind of raking light um, yeah. photography. So it could really kind of pour over it. So essentially, I had to kind of and this wasn't the only time this happened for me in the context of Leonardo studies, kind of prove my bona fides that I, you know, I went through all the critical editions, you know, I, I looked at these digital images. I was a serious scholar. And essentially, this um, art consultant said, you know, and I'll let you know. If, if there's an opportunity opens up, I will let you know. Um, and months passed. And then I remember getting a phone call from him saying, 
look, I can, I can get you some time with the manuscript if you can get to Seattle. Oh gosh. Living in New Jersey. Right. So I, you know, and on a grad student budget, so I had to figure out and I'd never actually been to Seattle before. So I had to, um, you know, very quickly kind of book a flight and arrange, you know, through a friend of a friend and I'm eternally grateful to them, you know, for a place to crash for a couple of days. And essentially they brought it, the manuscript, which is unbound. And so it's, it's, um, the sheets, you know, they're no longer, um, collected together. They are individually, um, and this is true of many Leonardo, um, manuscripts and works on paper, uh, kept between thin, thin slices of, uh, or pieces of perspex, right. Mounted within a cardboard mm-hmm. archival, not cardboard, but you know, an archival yep. paper mount. And that whole apparatus was brought to the Seattle art museum and their conservation lab. And the reason, and so I will eternally be thankful to him. And so this is another, you know, shout out of gratitude to Domenico Lorenza, that this fabulous, really generous, um, first rate Leonardo scholar was working on a new critical edition. So he was going to be examining, examining the pages as well. And he essentially shared time with me. So I think it was over two days, if I'm remembering rightly, that I was able to look at them. And I remember, and this is again, a memory. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I remember, um, finding it also so curious that if memory suits, um, his art consultant was there and could handle, you know, the perspective or sorry, the, you know, the, the mounts that, that held the individual sheets and I, and Domenico Lorenzo could. So I was, you know, pulling them out very carefully. I could, you know, hold it up to the light if I needed, mm-hmm. or, you know, turn it over because there's recto and verso, you need to examine mm-hmm. both sides and so forth. But if memory serves the staff, at the Seattle Art Museum might not have had permission to do so, right? It might've been like a legal uh-huh. kind of loan thing. And again, this is this is my memory, which is now it's been a minute. Yeah. But that stuck with me because it also speaks again to this notion of value. And of course, you know, some risks associated with something of such um, cultural importance, but also, you know, whatever monetary values attached to it for insurance purposes but that's kind of a wild story right so i hope that yes. was worth spending a couple of minutes it was oh my god i'm so glad i asked now i mean i thought i thought you might just be like it was awesome and like that was the <laughs> end of the story and we'd be like oh like we we want to know more no that was really juicy i'm it's I'm, kind of a journey right it was it's usually you know i usually start by asking because i tell this story not not often but you know when it comes up um, I usually flip it back at the person and ask, well, how would you go about finding, like, how do you contact the gates? Like, wh- how would you try to find access to the Codex Luster, right? Again, yeah. like, not even knowing where to start, because it's so fundamentally different than contacting a library or a museum, yeah. right? You're dealing with a public or even a national collection, um, it's not always clear how no. to how to proceed and get access unless you already have some some inner connection. So yeah, I find stories like this so fun, and you know, just it's like we could add it to the list of like things that you don't learn how to do in graduate school because like you would never think like that you should. Add, I mean, and and what would our grad advisors say? Like John Pinto's not going to be like, oh, I know how to get in touch with Bill Gates. Like, let, let me get his number from my Rolodex. Like, you know, no matter how big time the people we study with are, you know, this probably is outside of even their experience and their wheelhouse. I want to talk about the book. I'm starting to feel like bad that, that like this, let me just say to listeners, like this book is so cool. And 
I should point out too, it is so almost heartbreakingly beautifully illustrated. I mean, of course, if you're going to have a book about Leonardo, as you just said, his drawings, so many of which are reproduced here, are breathtaking in and of themselves. But Princeton has done this job that they so often do with these beautiful, high-res, glossy, I should point out, I have it in my notes, is 124 color illustrations. And get this, listeners, only 14 in black and white. I mean, that just goes to show the investment that they made in, in your argument, your thoughts. I mean, usually a contract, you see a contract, even with the major university press, it's usually the opposite. You get 124 black and white if you're lucky and 14 color. So to see that flipped, I, is it just, it made my, my heart smile. Um, and what you do with that and, and what you do with this argument, maybe, maybe the way in with the time that we have left, you know, I, I wanted to ask you just about some structural things, like um, the fact that the book is divided into two parts, which I think is is very smart. Part one is called Water Tamed. Part two is Water Unleashed. So there's like, you know, something poetic and sort of, you know, like a, the flip sides of a coin. And it's interesting, the, the breakdown from there, there's only, I shouldn't say only, but there's two chapters in part one and then four chapters in part two. And they all have really beautiful sort of poetic titles. Chapter one is called The Machine Drawings, which makes it pretty clear what it's about. Chapter two is Traversing Water. So a little bit more like, ooh, I wonder what this one's about. Chapter three, Flow and Flux. Chapter four, Water and Landscapes. Chapter five, Painting and Mapping. Chapter six, my personal favorite title, title, Water, Earth, Air, Fire, which I think Leonardo would have liked that title too, though I'm I'm extrapolating a little bit, but I guess what I wanted to ask you is is kind of about this decision to organize things or to talk about Leonardo's theories topically rather than chronologically, to go about it in a way that is a bit opposed to this traditional, linear, chronological model that we are so often as historians kind of encouraged to abide by and to do what you did, which is to really depart from that. And I think it's a structure for this book that really, really works, but where, where and when in your process did that happen? Was this the structure of it as a dissertation or was this one of the changes that you made? Did this happen in conjunction with an editor? I mean, I'm just always interested in this kind of big overarching stuff that really matters Mm. for how the book ends up being shaped as an argument. Yeah. Thank you, Allison. Um, to start off that two-part structure of the water tamed and water unleashed, that was there in the dissertation. And I have to oh, say, cool. I, it took me a long time. I was even before writing, you know, I think it might've been part of my initial proposal. I can't quite remember, but in my initial development of that project, I had this strong conviction that that way of framing this corpus of material. So all of his material concerned with the study and control and depiction of water and its many different manifestations could be um, broken up into these two, these two strategies or these two, these two ways of thinking about water and its flow and its, its corralling. And Water Tamed, the first half, is devoted to his engineering approaches to, to water, so its control. So a lot of water machines, hydraulic devices, some canalizations and plans and so forth but also some of his more inventive and to my mind, still more playful uh, 
representations of how man interacts with the natural world. So a whole series of mobile bridges that are the that is this military technology, in fact, for quickly making these 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 wooden structures to move troops from one place to another over watercourses of various depths and widths and so on. And also all of his wonderful, um, playful, imaginative, hopeful, optimistic designs for underwater breathing devices. This is Leonardo who wants to observe nature at every level, including from below the surface of water, right? Mm -hmm. So those are both ways of traversing terrain. So essentially those engineering approaches um, were, were grouped together. But even within that corpus, you have uh, a tremendous range of pictorial strategies and topics. And for me, it was important to give this sense of the richness of those approaches, right? That part of understanding Leonardo as a thinker in any subject, but in water specifically, is an understanding that he is constantly striving and contending with uh, both the limits of vision, of perception, but also representation and trying to figure out what is the best tool at hand, be that text or images and what kind of images, what kinds of texts are suitable to work through specific problems related to um, this notion of, of water tamed, you know, corralled, managed, etc. The other um, side of the book or the other um, half of it, Water Unleashed, gets more to the, the poetics, the scientific uh, explorations, the schematic diagrams of water flow, the study of hydrology and hydrodynamics, to also the pictorial representations, more painterly. And in fact, this is the section where I really get into the paintings, depicting water flow with its, you know, deep, potent symbolism, not just within the Christian world with baptism, but water is always because, of course, it's necessary for human survival, right? Um, all of these associations that make it such a important subject in painting. And so that chapter content, or excuse me, that half with its four chapters um, contends with some myriad ways that we see Leonardo and his peers thinking through how we uh, observe and understand um, the natural world around us through the particular lens of water. And this is also nice, thank you, your question lets me return to an earlier question you had about the shift from dissertation to books. So I've been saying how mm -hmm. this, this two-part structure had always been there. But certainly the arrangement of chapters, particularly in that back half, I think in the original dissertation, it might have been three or five. Now I can't even remember. But that totally got scrambled <laughs> and reworked, right? So it, yeah. the finished product as you have it um, today or four, and that order is not the order in which it appeared. And in fact, and this is true of the book as, as a whole, and this you know returns to something we were discussing earlier about the differences between the dissertation and the book, one of which is that I actually removed lots of information that appeared, you know, lots of extra extraneous examples, essentially, that were... Um, I came to understand where, you know, kind of redundant, right, that I could make my claims more more forcefully and perhaps, I hope, you know, elegantly by um, uh, being sort of concise and um, incisive in the material that I was talking about. So there was a lot of um, paring down and simultaneously amplification of certain material that I talked about. But the greatest changes certainly happened in the in the, the back half of the book. And my hope, of course, is that it's, it, it, it makes for, um, you know, the product that you, that you have today in a way that, that makes for a compelling and still, um, you know, sensible, sensible read that the argument comes through in a way that's, that's palatable and, you know, convincing, right. That's, that's my hope. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that in fact, about this, um, 
this idea that sometimes it's about paring down the examples you have or the number of references to other works that you make, the comparisons to the ones that, that will be the most salient, the mm. ones that will really be most impactful. And yeah, I, I know what you mean about, and I don't know that it's necessarily like a grad student versus like senior scholar kind of thing. Cause I, I think I still sometimes have this tendency where I'm like, just hit them with tons of examples, just tons of examples to prove your point. And, mm-hmm. and you're right that sometimes if you sort of pull back from that and it can be better, I'll just, uh, I just want to say like one more thing or ask one more thing just in terms of, you know, kind of springboarding from what you just said about paring things down. I found in chapter four that some of the comparisons you make in that chapter just really got me thinking in new ways. And maybe it's also because that chapter was the one that had so many of Leonardo's most famous paintings in chapter four, which is called water in landscapes. You talk about the very famous, the Virgin of the Rocks. You talk about the water that's in the back of the Mona Lisa. You talk about the Virgin and Child with St. Anne. Uh, Hopefully listeners are like, these are hits that they're, that they can, are even thinking of in their mind what they look like or Googling them. Um, And then the water motifs in the baptism of Christ that he worked on with Verrocchio, his teacher. And as I was reading that, I was struck by, you know, not just the kind of new things you say about those works and about the references you make to the drawings, which, of course, I'm not familiar with as, as not being a specialist on Leonardo, his sort of landscape studies. But you summon all these other, not too many, though, Renaissance practitioners. You bring up Bellini's St. Francis in the Desert, which I was like, ooh, that's a slam dunk comparison the Durer landscape studies, which was like total curveball and totally got me thinking about those Durers in really different ways. Like something about putting Durer and Albert Durer, I should say the German, the Northern sort of central German um, artist from around the same time period and slightly earlier, like putting him up against Leonardo, uh, it made made things happen in my brain. And same, that Montaigne, Madonna of the Rocks from 1466, which I'm now like obsessed with. Like, I just want to make like a meme. I want to like post about on social, like that is the weirdest, coolest Montaigne I think I've ever seen. So um, I'm trying to get to a question, which would be something like, you know, like, how do you how do you come up with these comparisons? Or, mm. you know, how, can you talk about the role that this kind of comparative analysis plays in your work? Because I think it does drive your arguments in some of these chapters, in chapter four in particular. And when it's done well, boy, it, it's so effective. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. And um, in this particular chapter, I think you picked... Um, the example within the book that is strongest in the sense of bringing in external and to your, to your mind, right? Very unexpected voices or other, you know, artists and examples into dialogue with Leonardo's work. And it was certainly part of my, my intentions to again, um, not see Leonardo in isolation. Like it makes no sense to me. There's zero intellectual interest in, in only looking at the work that he, and maybe even some of his closest predecessors or you know, peers we're looking at in a kind of hermetic isolation. Like what's the fun in that, right? That that is that is way too narrow of a scope. And instead I wanted to think about shared strategies and approaches as a way of both understanding better some of Leonardo's strategies, which may or may not have been uh, innovative in certain ways, but even if they were uh, analogous to other approaches by Durer, by 
Palaiuolo, by Bellini, by Mantegna, et cetera, any of these other folks I brought in as comparanda, that helps us get to a sense of, of shared, shared language and concerns around these pictorial challenges that I wanted to spend time with and, and deepen. And one of the other important um, positions I take as a scholar is to not restrict my analysis by topic, right? So this is also a kind of an overall comment about the organization of the book, that if you look at any one of the chapters in any, in any you know, one of the, the two halves, you'll find lots of different visual material that wouldn't necessarily seem to go together. And by that, mm -hmm. I mean, even yeah. in talking about the machine drawings, right? You're not only going to see machine drawings, because I think yeah, that that is quite so a narrow true. way to think about even just Leonardo's approaches to thinking about some of those problems in landscape. But it certainly occurs in this back half, in this particular chapter that you're talking about, chapter four, where you have something like his wonderful drawing of a uh, the interior of an arsenal of a forge, and you have this massive cannon, right? And it's got this 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 uh, almost a swarm of these nude bodies of these men who look like they're hoisting it up, right? And putting yeah. that in dialogue, for example, with Durer's magnificent print of a cannon in the landscape as ways of thinking about um, not just military knowledge, but the ways in which vision is being um, pressed upon, you know, a viewer, whether, you know, it's a drawing that's more or less private or for a small circle of individuals, or if it's a print that's intended to circulate more widely, uh, conditions a viewer's perceptions in ways that I found um, worth probing a little bit. So it's not, in, in short, it's not just about bringing in multiple artistic talents to bear and putting them in dialogue with Leonardo in unexpected ways, though that, of course, is a pleasure to do, but also thinking about different pictorial strategies, right, and how there might be certain shared commonalities that help deepen our understanding of certain types of investigations of our natural and built world. Mm -hmm. Pictorial strategies, indeed. Wow, well said. I'm looking at the clock and I cannot believe how fast this has gone by. I mean, it's like, I don't know how, I don't know how we ate up all this time having this like engrossing conversation, but I, I cannot not ask you the traditional last question. So you have to answer it quickly, unfortunately, but um, I hope you will share with me and with our listeners what you are working on now, what we can look forward to coming out hopefully soon. I'll signal two projects which are very much in development. One is my new book project, which I'm calling Weapons of Atlas, which is on mm -hmm. navigation instruments and map making within uh, new forms of printed books. And that's a much later project, I should say, that the dates of it I'm thinking are roughly 1580 to 1640. So oh, I'm really wow. kind of going out of my um, yeah. my Leonardo terrain and, and kind of moving, you might think of it Renaissance into Baroque, perhaps, right, era, but For also sure, switching, yeah. switching media from focusing primarily on drawings to thinking about print and printed books. And then Ooh, I nice. also wanted to signal a really exciting collaborative project I'm working on with my terrific Tulane colleague, Adrian Anagnos, on these plans and maps of an 18th century French fort that's in, um, and you'll know this because you're a Louisiana-based person as well, right? Mm -hmm. That's in essentially what's Plaquemines Parish. So it's just south of New Orleans. Oh. Yeah, this is fascinating, right? It's essentially a fort that was located at the nexus of the Gulf of Mexico and where it met the mouth of the Mississippi. So a very important strategic location, as you'd imagine. Yeah. And for me as an early modernist, it's my first project in the Americas and looking at those plans and maps 
with all of their complicated ways of depicting waterways, right? You can imagine. Oh yes. Has been has been a deep pleasure. I bet. Wow. Well, we will we will be looking forward to and keeping an eye out for those. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this book with us today or with me today and share these uh, all these thoughts with our listeners. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for this conversation, Allison. It's been a delight. All right. Okay, everybody, you have been listening to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Allison Lee, and I've been talking to Leslie Geddes about her new book, Watermarks, Leonardo da Vinci and the Mastery of Nature. As always, if you have questions or comments about this episode, you can contact me through my website at allison-lee.com, or you can find me on Instagram at Professor Lee. Thanks so much for listening.